Let's cultivate our motivation. So it's good to frequently bring our minds back to the idea that we are part of a group of all sentient beings and that all of us are in the same predicament, wanting happiness, not wanting suffering. All of us are confused by our ignorance and all of us have the Buddha potential. So there's nothing partisan about any of those uh, attributes that we all share. None of them depend on categories that are made up by human beings so that we can differentiate one from another. But when we really feel that we're all in samsara together, then we want to do what's going to be helpful to the entire group. We don't want to harm everybody else. Because as a member of a group, we know that when we harm somebody else in the group, we're also adversely affecting ourselves. And especially when we understand karma, we know that when we harm others, we are also harming ourselves. So in our world now, where people seem to be thinking of more and more ways to separate themselves from others and more and more identities and categories, let's keep ourselves rooted in all sentient beings. What's best for all sentient beings and having a compassionate attitude towards all sentient beings without cherishing some and hating others. But caring for all equally because in terms of the basic important things in our life, wanting happiness and not suffering, we're all the same. So based on that feeling of equanimity or equality, let's generate the bodhicitta. Not so that we can stick out from the group and be important, but rather so that we can serve the group of sentient beings who have continually been kind to us. And let's make that bodhicitta our motivation for sharing the Dharma this evening.
So that motivation feels like a nice dharma motivation, right? But doesn't it apply to what's going on in the country right now? Yeah. And especially um, about the issue of social distancing, wearing masks, uh, going out as little as possible, you know, how much we can do ourselves to really benefit the entire group and not to threaten the well-being of anybody else. And yet there are people who are really upset by the uh, recommendations coming from the CDC and when their state governments make the mandate those uh, points so they're no longer recommendations. But if we really have an attitude of thinking about the welfare of all, then if we have to sacrifice a little bit of our comfort for the benefit of many, it seems worth it. So I think this is an important attitude to to keep in mind uh, so that we don't contribute to the divisiveness and uh, so that we don't get angry and speak harshly about the people who, uh, you know, resent these guidelines or don't want to follow them. Um, and to, to see that they have their reasons. We may not agree with those reasons. Okay. But at least from our side, let's us do what is good for all sentient beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so whether our leaders encourage us or they don't, whether, uh, you know, no matter what's going on from our side, to be very clean, clear about this. So again, to me, this is another example of how we apply Dharma principles to what's happening in our world and in our life around us. Okay, they aren't just nice things to talk about, but we really try to live them. And so make your masks and make them as beautiful and as decorative as you want to. (laughs) I'm sure we will, you know, uh, they'll start some kind of fashion competition for masks, they'll have a red carpet now, and you know, instead of your your dress, you know, your mask. And then mask prices will start at fifty cents and go to five hundred dollars, especially if they're made by Gucci or you know somebody else. <laughs> We're so funny, aren't we? (laughs) Okay.
So, uh, we're uh, on chapter 10, at the, towards the end of it, on page 226, the section that says POA, or transference of conference, con- consciousness. <laughs> okay. So, POA is the Tibetan word. When it's uh, translated into English, it comes out as transference of consciousness. So His Holiness says, Poa is a practice for transferring the consciousness at the time of death so that it will take a precious human life or be reborn in the Pure Lands. Pure Lands are places created by the unshakable resolve and merit of Buddhas where all external conditions are conducive for Dharma practice. There are two forms of poa, one found in the mind training teachings, the other in Tantra. Okay, so first he's going to do the mind training teachings, uh, transference of consciousness. So um, many years ago, we did the seven point thought transfer mind transformation or mind transformation. We haven't, we should do that again because it's been a really long time since we went through it, and it's very full of lots of good advice. Um, Some of it is in, uh, a number of points in it are in volume five, which, in praise of great compassion, which is coming out August 11th, and which I have a sneak preview copy. So, if you're my friend, I might show it to you. <laughs> no, uh, Faith, uh, the person who assists Daniel at Wisdom, sent it uh, before the interview, and it turned out very nice. It's really beautiful. And in terms of the contents, it's, uh, it's really a stupendous volume. Yeah. Okay, so... In the seven-point thought transformation, the fourth point, elucidating a lifetime's practice, describes a practice of transference of consciousness based on bodhicitta called the five forces. Familiarizing ourselves with the five forces while alive will make practicing them at the time of death much easier and give us a sense of joy at the time we die. Bodhicitta gives us courage to work for sentient beings. It makes our life meaningful and dispels all despair. Who wouldn't want to have this mental state when dying? So the first of the five forces um, is the white seed is done before actively dying, when the mind is clear and can make decisions. So these are the five in in the context of when somebody's dying, not the five during life, okay? Um, But you can practice the meaning when you're alive. It's the same. Okay, so the white seed. So what, what do you do with the white seed? Create merit. Free your mind from attachment to possessions by giving them away. Yeah, one young man uh, who I was 
counseling um, over a period of time when he was dying, when I lived in Singapore. This was in 88. And uh, he was very good without me saying anything, you know. He gave away his possessions. He really believed in karma. He was a, quite a devout Buddhist. Um, he, he had just been accepted to go to Tulane University. And so for a Singaporean to uh, get to go to a foreign university is a big deal. And, but before he could go there as a graduate student, he got cancer. So the whole thing had to change. Um, but he was very good and gave away his possessions. His most treasured possessions were his books. So he saved those until the very end, but he also gave those away. And actually, as he was dying, he called his sister over and reminded her to give donations to the various temples and monastics. Huh? Right? Like one of his last thoughts is doing that. Quite amazing. So forgive all those you have harmed, uh, who have harmed you intentionally or unintentionally, and apologize to all those whom you have harmed. So this is very, very important, and I would advise not waiting until we're almost dying to do it. Okay, so if we have bad feelings about somebody, uh, we need to clear them up. Yeah, and sometimes it could be by talking to the other person. Some, sometimes we've lost touch with the other person or they don't want to see us, so we can't apologize directly to them or we can't forgive them directly. But the important thing is that in our own mind, our attitude has changed. What I've discovered over the years is I think, oh, I've cleared up all my negative feelings towards different people over things that have happened. And then some small thing will happen, and I'll remember something that happened many years ago, even to somebody who I don't think about very much. But in that one incident, which, you know... I haven't really talked to that person much, but in that one small incident, they did something or said something that I was offended by, and it's still in my mind. I haven't released it. It's very, I don't know if you find this, you know? Uh, it's like, oh, you know, how did you get in there, nasty thought, resentful thought? Um, I don't want you to hang around any longer. Uh, but a lot of time went by, and it was just there underground. I didn't even notice it. Uh, so to, to really... Uh, of course, the bigger things we need to forgive and apologize for, I'm sure will come to the mind very quickly. But as we do this practice over time, there come more and more subtle kind of things. Okay, but, uh, you know, best to clear it up on a daily basis if we can. 
And anything that we've stockpiled over the years, over the decades, you know, pull them out and clean them up now. And uh, one way to clean them up is starting with our meditation, you know, and practicing the thought training teachings with respect to that other person and the situation that we're still holding anger about. Yeah. And so really trying to practice and to change our attitude towards the person, towards the situation. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, forgive them and also own our part in it and what we need to do to apologize. Okay. So if we do that, uh, then and we keep up with it on a daily basis, uh, then when we go to bed at night, our heart is is peaceful. It's clear. We're not uh, tangled up, kind of. Yeah. Oh, we don't have the cats here tonight to show us how to growl. <laughs> when we need an example of growling, they aren't here. Okay. Okay. Um, so if it is not possible to apologize directly to a person, reconciling with them in your mind is more important. Okay. Also recall that there is no sense worrying about what happens to your body after death. It is simply a lump of organic matter. Except death as a natural part of life. So as you're approaching death, um, which means as you're living, because <laughs> we are approaching death, um, you know, to really look at our relationship with our body, and especially the level of attachment we have to, to the body, and uh, to see all the different ways in which we are attached to the body so many different ways, and try and work with those now so that, again, at the time of death, that doesn't come, come up. So, of course, the, the most blatant way that we're attached to our body is our looks and wanting to look good uh, so that people will be attracted to us. Okay? That's kind of in all societies everywhere, you know? So people dress in a certain way. All societies have ornaments, what we do with our hair. So all these things, you know, how attached to, to the body we are. The shape of the body, the smell of the body. Yeah, every the, the uh, sound of the body, the taste of the body, everything, you know. It's uh, uh, all of our five senses are involved. You know, we want to be in a place with exactly the right temperature on a bed that is firm enough but not too firm, okay? In a room that's quiet but maybe not too quiet. You know, we, uh, we have all these things that we want everything 
to be just so, so that our body is comfortable. Okay, but if we keep looking, I mean, we're attached to our our body in so many ways, especially we don't want to experience any pain. We don't want it to get sick. You know, look what we do to avoid, uh, you know, how how sometimes we're just so sensitive about any small sensation in our body that, you know, oh, I blew my nose, I'm sick, I better go back to bed, or, uh, you know, my little toe hurts, I must have toe cancer, and I'm going to die. Uh, you know, we're, we're quite uh, attached to the body in this way. Yeah. And uh, we were even talking a few days back about Nancy Reagan, and about that one movie star whose name I still can't remember, who had a facelift after she died, and how they make people up, you know, uh, embalm the body and make them up because people want to look good after they're, you know, when they're dead lying in their coffin. Um, But it's interesting to think of, you know, what would happen if I uh, died in a plane crash and there were parts of my body littered over a field, or what about the people fighting wars and how they die, or the people in terrorist attacks or bombings, and, you know, what, how our body gets blown apart, and, you know, what, even, it's very interesting to think, you know, uh, well, do I want them to find all the parts of my body and put it together so there's a whole body, so there's me that they can look at? Um, What happens if somebody picks up parts of my body and treats them very in a very disrespectful way? Because this is a big thing for some people, you know? And it's it's written, I think, even in the Geneva uh, Conventions, in war situations, not to desecrate the enemy's body. You're, you're okay. You're allowed to kill them. But once you've killed them, you should respect the dead body and not pee on it or poo on it or desecrate it in some way. Okay. Quite interesting, isn't it, how we think? But to think, well, what about if that were my body? And people were peeing on it, or they were slicing it up, you know. And, you know, one side of the mind says, well, I'm dead. I'm not going to have any sensation in that body. I'm going to be on my way to another life. I don't really care. And then every so often there's a part of the mind that says, I don't want them to treat my body like that. You know? And then you go, what in the world am I thinking? It's not even my body anymore after I've died. But how the mind, you know, grasps on. Because I always wondered, you know, in the ten um, innermost thoughts of the Kadampa, we went through them one time briefly, remember? So the last three have to do with our body after we've died. Yeah? Now, why in the most 
you know, they're talking to people who've practiced Dharma for a long time, you know, who are well marinated in thought training, who are okay dying alone. But it, the last things to look out for is that attachment to the corpse. Yeah? I found that so interesting because I was going, who in the world would be attached to their corpse? Until I started imagining myself dying in certain situations. And then I thought, oh, I don't want them treating my body like that. But what a stupid thought when it's not even my body. And when I am, you know, no longer me, and the consciousness is in the process of going on to another rebirth. Okay. So what my point is, is there are many, many ways in which we're attached to the body. Yeah. And so it's good to spend some time looking at all of them. Yeah. How do we think about death? How do we even react to uh, the mindfulness of the body and the four mindfulnesses? Yeah? When we're asked to think of the body as foul. Or when we meditate on corpses and the corpses turning different colors. Yeah? Or when we meditate and we scan the body and look at all the different organs and parts of the body. How do we feel about this body? And when it doesn't work well, how do we feel? Or when somebody tells us that we look ugly, or we're too thin, or we're too fat, or you've aged so much since I saw you last. (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad people are noticing all my new wrinkles. I'm really proud of them. So how do we react when we're meditating on what comes out of the body? (laughs) (laughs) And when your snot is one of the cleanest things that come out of your body. Okay. So very good to explore this. In, in our meditation and clear up as many things as we can about the body. And also to look at, at our ideas about death. Because some people, in the back of their mind, they feel like death is a failure. Yeah, if I die, I failed. I'm supposed to live. And I'm supposed to accomplish certain things in my life. And of course, when at the time we die, we haven't been able to accomplish everything we've wanted to do. That's a given, okay? But we feel, oh, I failed. Or some people feel like death is a punishment. Yeah? If I die, I'm getting punished. Or some people think... I caused my own illness. My anger made me have cancer. You know, these kinds of things, really, those are very cruel. But people 
will say those to other people. You know, they're into kind of the new age thing. And, you know, well, you're angry a lot. And did you ever think your anger caused your cancer? You know, how does that make somebody feel? Okay, so we, we have a lot of judgment, just even about the, the body aging and the body dying and the body getting sick. You know, when the body gets sick or it's injured, it can't do what it used to do. Oh, I failed. Yeah, I'm a failure. I'm useless. And think of how we often turn away from people who are disabled. I think very often out of fear because it reminds us that we could be disabled. But you know what? Unless we die first, all of us are going to be disabled. Sit with that one for a minute. Because we think, oh no, uh, being disabled is only those extreme things that never happened to, to me, you know. But aging makes us disabled. We can't do what we used to do. Right? <laughs> yeah? And then you watch other people turn away from you because you're walking with a cane or with crutches or now you're in a wheelchair or now your joints are deformed or you're limping or, you know. And now it's us. So... You know, good to really think about this and don't see people who are disabled as other because that's who we're going to be. Okay, so accept aging, death, sickness as a natural part of life. So that's the first of the five forces, the uh, white seed. The second is the force of aspiration. So do the seven limbs, okay? Visualize prostrating and making offerings to your spiritual mentors uh, and the three jewels. So this is what we studied yesterday in... um, uh, Bodhi, Shantideva's uh, Bodhisattva's way, I, I, engaging in the Bodhisattva deeds. I changed the translation, and now I can't remember whatever what it is, and I always want to say the old one. Okay, but uh, if we're very familiar with that, you know, prostrating, making offerings, um, you know, if you know these things by heart. You don't have to even say the words of a prayer that somebody wrote. You just do the the visualizations and create the feelings uh, and attitudes yourself. Uh, Confess and restore all broken precepts and degenerated ethical restraints. And dedicate all your merit by aspiring during death, bardo, and rebirth. 
May I never be separated from the practice of bodhicitta. May I always be guided by qualified spiritual mentors who lead me to cultivate bodhicitta. Okay, so as we're dying, you know, come back to these practices that we've been doing during our life. All these practices to purify and create merit. Okay, the seven limb pair. You do them again. And then especially the last one with the, with the dedication of merit, you really pray, you know, dedicate very strongly to never be separated from qualified Mahayana and Vajrayana mentors and to follow them correctly. Yeah. There's a story, I can't remember all the parts of it, but about somebody, one old lady, when uh, she was at Gondon Monastery, this was in old Tibet, and they had uh, the uh, throne of Jay Rinpoche, and they had his body involved on it. I'm sure to get parts of the story wrong, but, you know, hopefully the point will be right. Um, and, uh, you know, when she was paying respect and making offerings to Jay Tsongkhapa, uh, she prayed, may I too uh, one day sit on the on the, his throne, you know, kind of meaning, may I one day have his qualities and, and sit on the throne. And then some time went by, and then uh, one day one of the monks walked in, and this was after Jason Kappa's body had been removed, I guess, and uh, there was a calf sitting on the throne, and the monk had some kind of clairvoyant powers, and saw it was the next rebirth of this old woman who had prayed to sit on Tsongkhapa's throne. So her prayer was actualized. But it, the point of it is you don't just pray for the main thing. You have to pray for all the cooperative conditions, you know. So may I sit on the throne, you know, because I am a realized spiritual mentor and I want to teach other sentient beings and, and so on. Yeah? So uh, to, to really fill our dedication out. Hmm. Okay. And then also to really set that intention during death, bardo, and rebirth. I'll... I'll I don't want to be separated from the two bodhicittas, conventional and ultimate bodhicitta. You know, because that's important to, you know, keep in your mind as we're dying. Third is the force of, of destruction. Seeing that grasping the self, possessions, friends, and relatives as inherently existent is the chief cause of cyclic existence. Try to eradicate it by contemplating impermanence and emptiness. Make a strong determination not to let your mind fall under the influence of ignorance, animosity, and attachment. Okay, so again, focusing the mind on impermanence, whatever 
is appearing to my mind, it's not going to be there forever. So don't get wigged out about it and don't get desirous of it either. Yeah, so if we can really hold impermanence and emptiness in our mind as we're dying, uh, that makes dying a lot easier because then as karmic visions appear to the mind, uh, instead of reacting to them with fear or attachment or ignorance or whatever, we are aware to, to just that, oh, this is a karmic vision. It's kind of like... Uh, if you're dreaming, if you have the ability to be aware when you're dreaming, then even you're having a nightmare, you don't freak out because you're able to say in your dream, oh, this is just a dream, it's not real. It's helpful in our daily life to do that, times to train the mind so that when we're in uh, either situations where we really like stuff or we really don't like stuff, to think this is just an appearance to the mind. Because we usually don't react to things as appearances to the mind. We react to them as they are real. And this is real, so I have to have an opinion about it. Because my mind is already interpreting it to mean this or that. And then I'm judging it and I'm having opinions about it and I'm generating emotions about it. And I'm making a court case out of it. And on and on and on. You know, whereas if we're able to catch uh, that whole thing at the beginning and say, it's just an appearance to the mind. Okay, there's somebody insulting me, but it's not a real person and it's not real insult. It's just an appearance to my mind. Thank you. That line of thinking is so attractive, um, but at the same time, it seems like it takes all the fun out of life or like the, the life out of life. It's like we're just floating through ether and images are appearing, but nothing is tangible and how do we like feel like we're still alive yet not believe so strongly in these appearances yeah. well what is it that makes us feel alive when do we feel most alive when our grasping at self is the strongest yeah, and we don't go to great extent to uh, reaffirm ourselves in one way or another. You know, if we really look, we're constantly trying to reaffirm that I exist. And our emotional reactions or one way that this happens. Yeah. Oh, this wonderful thing. I'm going to get interviewed by ABC. Oh, for three whole minutes. And they'll put me on television. And 
you know, I wish my parents were still alive. They would be so proud of me. Ah, I'm going to be on ABC. Maybe next week I'll be on NBC and then CBS and then CNN, but not Fox News. No, actually, if I went to Fox News, it might be good. I could help a lot of Cynthia being. <sighs> okay, so. You know, we react to things, don't we? And create stories and on and on and on. Yeah. Or we do the opposite. Oh, they asked me to be on ABC. Oh, no. That means it's going to be on national television. And all these people are going to see me. What am I going to say? I don't have anything to say. Yeah. They're going to interview me three minutes. It might as well be three hours. What am I going to say? Be nice to other people. <laughs> yeah. She's going to say, tell me the essence of Buddhism. And I'm going to say, be nice to other people. And the interview is going to say, what? What? We asked you to say something here to say something profound. And then my reputation will be ruined, and I won't be able to go on NBC or CBS. <laughs> oh, you know, or CNN, and I'll be stuck with Fox News, and they may not even invite, invite me. Oh, this is terrible. My whole reputation is going to be ruined. You know, so we feel very alive when we're thinking like that, aren't we? We're so alive because everything's revolving around me and it's all so incredibly important. What people think of me, my reputation, and I am representing Buddhism for three minutes to the national audience and it'll even be an international audience. I'm a lot, you know, this is just ego grasping. Yeah? This is exactly when they talk about, uh, you know, grasping true existence. It's exactly what's going on. Okay? So if we grasp the happy things, we're also going to grasp when we fall on our face. And when the happy things turn out to be awful, like I make myself look like a jerk on this interview, you know, and then that gets really blown up, and that is like so awful, you know, and all my teachers are going to call me and they're going to say, you were representing Buddhism on ABC national television, and all you had to say was be nice to other people. You know, you think that's all we've been teaching you for 40-some years? Anyway, you still haven't learned it. <laughs> yeah? So it's, it's like uh, that time when somebody asked exactly what your question was to His Holiness in a public talk and said, you know, without suffering, we don't know happiness, and then our life is, is so boring. 
And His Holiness said, well, you know, maybe I don't go quite as high up as some people emotionally, but I also don't get so down like they do emotionally. Some kind of steadiness. And that's okay. I like that. Yeah. Does he seem like a miserable person who's not alive, who's deadbeat? Yeah. He's more alive than any of us. Okay. Fourth is the force of motivation. This is a strong intention to practice bodhicitta during death, bardo, and rebirth. Develop a strong motivation to practice the two bodhicittas, conventional bodhicitta, which is the altruistic intention, and ultimate bodhicitta, the wisdom realizing emptiness. Aspire never to be separated from the mind training practice and the two bodhicittas in any of your lives. Yeah, just generating that aspiration is powerful. Can we remember to do it? Yeah. We better write that in our Dharma will and hope that when we die, somebody remembers we had a Dharma will and pulls it out. Will our friends remember we had a Dharma will? Will they know where to look at it? Yeah. They'll open the filing cabinets and her start tossing out paper, (laughs) you know? Or go into our private filing cabinets. My filing cabinets, which I had organized in a certain way, and now you're tossing out the paper to find my my Dharma will? Yeah, will they remember to do that? Will they clean up all the paper afterwards? Will they do what what we wrote? Yeah, will we even remember? Okay, so this is, you know, why it's good to have a responsible Dharma friend (laughs) around when we die. Okay, fifth is the force of acquaintance or familiarity. At the time of death, do the taking and giving practice to increase your love and compassion. Especially think of taking on the pain of others who are dying and transforming your body and merit into whatever others need and giving it to them. Meditate on emptiness, especially the absence of an inherently existent person who is dying. Can you imagine when you're dying, meditating on emptiness and then realizing there's no one dying? Yeah, there's no one dying. Mm. Um, meditate, meditation on the empty nature of the mind is also helpful. So recognize all that appears as simply appearance to the mind, not as things to react to or grasp onto. So here's also... The sutra that we recite on on Tuesdays for the bodhisattvas who are about to die, you know, that's telling us how to think also. Okay, so the King of Concentration Sutra says, Migrators in cyclic existence are like dreams. 
No one is inherently born here, and no one inherently dies. No inherently existent sentient being, human or living being, is found. These things are like bubbles, plantain trees, illusions, flashes of lightning, reflections of the moon in water, and mirages. In this world, no one inherently dies and passes or transmigrates to another life. Wow. Read that to somebody when they're dying. And then hope they don't say, oh, but if it's all appearances, (laughs) then it has no fun. I want to grasp at another body. Yeah, no, you don't want to grasp at another body. Okay, then, if possible, lie in the lion position, the position that the Buddha rested in when he passed away. So you lie on your right side with your right hand under your cheek, your cheek, uh, extend your legs and place your left hand on your left thigh. Yeah, they also sometimes say block your nostril with the ring finger of that hand. Uh, And then relax the mind and practice as outlined above. So that's the sutra poa, according to the the mind training. The tantric poa practice involves a practitioner ejecting his or her consciousness out of the body through the top of the head and transferring it to a pure land. Among the different levels of poa, the supreme is when a realized yogi on the completion stage of tantra actualizes the clear light and then arises in the impure illusory body instead of the bardo. So that's the rare trans, you know, he says this is a rare occurrence, but that's the supreme transference of consciousness because your body is no longer going to be an ordinary body. It's going to be the you know, the, Im- the impure, illusory body, uh, you know, with the, with the example clear light. And then you, it makes it very easy at that point in the bardo or in the next life to uh, uh, realize the actual clear life, clear light and the, and the pure, illusory body. But how many of us are going to be at that level? POA enables a skilled practitioner to take rebirth with excellent conditions for Dharma practice. After 1959, uh, some Tibetans who were to be imprisoned by the Chinese communists, or in 1959, uh, some of them who were going to be imprisoned by the Chinese communists, made their consciousnesses leave their body through POA rather than be subjected to imprisonment. By means of meditation and visualization techniques, they severed the connection between their body and the subtlest mind and projected the subtlest mind into a pure land 
where they could continue practicing the path. So these were a few very highly realized practitioners who had practiced POA during life and who knew the exact time to do it. Okay, we're gonna continue here and you'll see. As taught in the tantric text, POA is to be done by the practitioner himself. So you're supposed to do it yourself when you're about to die. To be able to meditate in this way at the time of death or while dying, one must receive empowerment, first of all, and second, train in POA while one is healthy and alive. So this is something that requires a lot of meditation while we're healthy and alive. And also, while training in POA, it is uh, essential to do the practice of a long-life deity. Why? Because when you practice POA when you're alive, you're practicing, you know, uh, visualizing, ejecting your consciousness out uh, through the top of your head, uh, because that's what you want to, what po what you're going to do if you do POA at the time of death. Uh, but because you're practicing uh, what is going to happen at death, you need to do a long life practice to make sure your consciousness stays in the body, you know, and doesn't leave uh, prematurely. Okay, a person who has not practiced POA consistently while alive will not be able to perform it when dying. Okay, when a practitioner through meditation has attained some control over the wind energy in the body and mastery over his mind and feels that death is imminent and cannot be avoided, okay, he transfers his consciousness to a pure land. So this is what the situation has to be. Death is imminent and it can't be avoided. So you're not gonna do it just because you're fed up with somebody or you know, something like that. He does this while he still has enough physical energy and mental concentration to properly perform the practice. If he waits until the body is weak, transferring the consciousness could be difficult. But doing it too soon resembles suicide. So great skill is required to perform POA at the proper time. If the POA practice is done irresponsibly or without the proper motivation, there is danger of inadvertently shortening one's life. Although the person does not go through the eight dissolutions in a prolonged manner, they do occur in the proper sequence. Okay, so you can see to do POA at the time of death, one has to be a really skilled, well-practiced um, practitioner. So His Holiness continues. It was very interesting talking to His Holiness about all of this because he has a, a, a very particular uh, attitude towards POA and concern about people doing POA. 
Poa is not a substitute for practicing the Dharma daily. Okay. Why does he say this? Because there's some masters that teach Poa, and the disciples, you know, I mean, transfer your mind to a pure land. This is like a really exciting practice, you know, and you visualize the going up, and you go hick, and you go pay, and it's like, and then if you get some sign, like, you know, it becomes soft here and a little mushy. It's like, oh, I'm getting somewhere else, <laughs> you know. And so some people get really excited by the POA practice, um, but they don't do the rest of the Dharma practice, like the seven limb prayer, <laughs> you know, and generating bodhicitta and all these other kinds of things. So he says it's no substitute for practicing the Dharma daily. Tantric practitioners should continue practicing taking death, bardo, and rebirth into the three Buddha bodies. If at the time of death they are not able to actualize the path itself, they do powa in order to carry on Dharma practice continuously in their future lives. So if they're able to transform death and bardo, you know, then they do that. If they can't do that, then they can do poa and transfer their mind to a pure land. Okay. And so the, the motivation is that, you know, one of bodhicitta, so you can keep on practicing in your future life. So poa is specifically for those who have engaged in serious tantric practice during their lives. If you neglect to purify negativities, accumulate merit, and meditate on renunciation, bodhicitta, and emptiness while alive, and at the time of death, ask a lama to do powa for you, it is difficult. Why does he say that? Because that happens a lot. It happens more often than an actual tantric practitioner being transferring their own mind. Okay, so what what people do is they're dying, or uh, you know, when they ask somebody to call a lama to do poa for them, or uh, I've seen in some countries I go to uh, where the you know there's been a group of people who have learned poa and practice it. Then they all sit down together and do poa for their friend who died. But, uh, you know, if you don't have the ability to transfer your own consciousness, how are you going to be able to transfer somebody else's consciousness? Okay. Without your own effort to practice the Dharma, if you want someone to miraculously transfer your consciousness to a pure land when you die, you will be disappointed. You should be very careful. So I said, I mean, his holiness, I remember very clearly talking about this with him and, you know, his attitude about this. He also, um, during this conversation, he was also questioning people's motivation for being born in Amitabha's Pure Land. 
you know. And it, he seemed to think that most people wanted to be born in Sukhavati, not because they had the bodhicitta motivation, but because they were afraid of going to the lower realms. And he was clearly not approving of that, <laughs> you know. In other words, if, if you want to go to Sukhavati, you should do it for the proper motive, with the proper motivation, for the proper reason, not just out of a selfish reason so that you don't have a bad rebirth. So then that made me kind of go, hmm, hmm. Yeah, because it was almost as if he were saying, uh, you know, do you want to go to, you're kind of chickening out because your bodhicitta isn't that strong. Yeah, if you really were practicing bodhicitta well, you would, you know, stay and help sentient beings. But on the other hand, it's good to be born in a pure land if you have bodhicitta, because then you can actualize enlightenment faster, hopefully, and then then show up back here. Yeah. In the meantime, His Holiness has to hold it all together himself. Many Tibetan families, and now some non-Tibetan ones, ask a practitioner to perform this poa ritual at the time of their loved one's death. Although it is customary to do this in the Tibetan community, realistically speaking, it has little value if the dying person lacks familiarity with the poa practice and the person doing it lacks a deeper experience of it. Under these circumstances, doing poa becomes a dry ritual. Of course, it still has some value because people repeat mantras and recite holy scriptures, which creates a peaceful feeling in the room of the dying person and give, can give him or her, uh, and can help him or her let go of this life more easily. So it's beneficial on that level, but if you're really thinking that somebody else who's not a really high practitioner is going to transfer your consciousness to the pure land, His Holiness said you're likely to be disappointed. Okay. Although POA is principally meant, meant for a practitioner to transfer his own mind at the time of death, an experienced POA practitioner may be able to help a dying person transfer his consciousness. POA is done just before the person dies or at the time he is dying. As a result of the expert POA practitioner's influence, the dying person may develop some determination or inspiration or may have a new spiritual experience. If the dying person has trained in POA when he was alive and healthy, it is easier for the expert POA practitioner to help him at the time of death. 
this is a proper way to practice POA. So it's uh, oneself has been practicing it, and the person who helps is expert in, in doing that. Some people become excited at the prospect of POA, especially because the physical signs such as fluid or swelling at the crown can appear when they practice. This is due to the impact of the winds in the body. It is not indicative of high realization. The real determination of our future rebirth is the karma we create. Observing proper ethical discipline, applying the antidotes to the afflictions, purifying destructive karma, and practicing the six perfections are guaranteed methods for having a good rebirth. Okay. If we do not do these, even if a very high lama does poa at our bedside as we die, he can do very little to help us. He can say hick and pay to transfer our mind to a pure land many times during the ritual. But if we have not created merit and purified destructive karma while alive, these just become the cries of a miserable dying person. In short, depending on the person, different meditations could be practiced at the time of death. People who are more familiar with the five forces will do that. Others who have trained well in taking death, intermediate state, and rebirth into the path to the three Buddha bodies will practice that. Those who are well trained in POA can rely on that method. The main point is that whatever practice we do should be done with bodhicitta. It should transfer our mind and place it in a virtuous state at the time of death. Okay. Any questions so far? So the first one was, I think, in follow-up to my question. Um, Someone said, so is a dull life the ideal life then? <laughs> uh, you're, when you are free, or put it this way, the more you lessen your ignorance, anger, and attachment, the more vibrant your life is. It may be very dull or look very dull to ordinary people because you're not like bouncing off the walls with joy one day and horribly depressed the next day. But you're very much alive and your mind is free and you can, you know, connect with whatever sentient being is in front of you and you can make your life meaningful instead of wasting it doing stupidagios. Yeah. So, uh, certainly, I mean, do you, do you think the Buddha was a dull person? Uh, when you read the scriptures, did the Buddha just sit there? <laughs> I have no attachment. I have no anger. 
I have equanimity towards all sentient beings. I don't care about any of them. Yeah? Is that the ideal of enlightenment? Yeah? Is that the figure of the Buddha? When you, when you look at long-term practitioners, when we look at our teachers, are they like that? Just kind of like, oh yeah, what's happening today? Oh, same old, same old, complaining sentient beings coming to ask me advice. Oh, but I don't have any antipathy towards them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> then uh, the next question. <laughs> <laughs> Can one actually get to a pure land without a good motivation? I doubt it. I severely doubt it. Yeah. There may be a few cases, but I can't see what would cause rebirth in a pure land uh, without somebody having a good motivation. Because first of all, they wouldn't even want to go there. You know, somebody without a, a good motivation, it's like, I want to be born where there's lots of casinos. I want to be born where there's bars and discotheques and strip clubs. You know, they're not going to say, I want to be born. I want to go to the pure land. In fact, they may even see the pure land as a frightening place because they think it's going to be boring. Um, my faith or knowledge about pure lands is so pure, so it's not my main aspiration right now. Um, but then it said, you know, don't wish for rebirth and, um, you know, not to be reborn, but then, um, uh, like, I think it would be really, really good to have good conditions for practicing the Dharma to continue on the path to develop the mind and, um, be of benefit, gain merit, and purify. So just that, um, is that efficient enough? <laughs> or should I? I mean, yeah, here it says um, always to practice the Mayana path and be connected and practice mm -hmm. with um, yeah. qualified Mayana teachers and such. Yeah, and pray for a precious human life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. And what is most beneficial for myself and others. Right, right. And not to be separated from the good teachers and to follow them well. You know. Because you see some people, they meet really excellent teachers, they can't understand them, or they think that they're a little bit weird, or you know, they can't see the qualities of, of the good teachers. When meditating on aging and death, how uh, how do one will feel or deal with it when one no longer physically able to do a prostration or physically do anything at all? Mm. You mean how do you how would you feel or how would you practice? Yeah, you yeah, yeah you just do the best you can. Yeah. Or when one is no longer able to sit for meditation. 
Yeah, then you stand for meditation. Then you lie down. Then you sit in a, uh, you don't have to sit cross-legged. You sit in, on a chair. You sit on a bench. You do a headstand. You, you do whatever you can, you know. So they always say, you know, this is the best way to be. But of course, all of the practitioners age. And all of our bodies fall apart. And so when that happens, you just do it, adjust to it. Yeah? And you do the best you can. I mean, I'm having trouble with my legs, so I do the short prostration. Yeah? You do like that. You, you can't sit on the floor. You sit on the, you sit on the chair. Yeah? It's, yeah? Doesn't have to be a big thing. Because what's important is the state of your mind. When it was talking about tantric power, it said you reject your consciousness to a pure land, and the supreme one is a realized yogi on the completion stage, actualizing the clear light and arising as the impure, illusory body instead of the bardo. Are they the same thing, or is arising as the illusory body in a bardo different than going to a pure land? I, I think they would probably be different. Okay. Yeah. Because uh, if you're born in a pure land, you don't have to have an illusory body. Yeah, there's different kinds of pure land. And I mean, in, in Amitabha's pure land, uh, you, don't have a, you don't have to have tantric realizations or be a tantric practitioner to be born there. And you said that the last three innermost jewels have to do with how we relate to a corpse. Uh, yeah, or how we relate to our body dying. I can't remember them exactly. Do you have them in front of you? I do. Okay. Um, be willing to be expelled from the ranks of so-called normal people. Be willing to be regarded amongst the ranks of dogs. And being completely involved in attaining the divine rank of a Buddha. Or those okay. are the three mature attitudes towards being expelled, finding, and attaining. Are they the last of the three? Well, anyway, there's yeah. somewhere in in the ten innermost. Do you have the other ones that maybe I was I was incorrect in saying they were the last three, but there's some definitely about yeah, the body. Maybe it's the trusting acceptances where there's four of mm -hmm. um, as our innermost outlook on life, be willing to accept Dharma with total trust. As our innermost attitude towards following the Dharma, be willing to accept with total trust, even becoming a beggar. As our innermost attitude towards becoming a beggar, be willing to accept with total trust, even having to die. As our innermost attitude towards death, be willing to accept with total trust, even having to die friendless and alone in an empty place, in an empty cave, in a deserted place. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I really appreciate how clear His Holiness is in talking about who is really qualified or should even be doing this poor practice. Before I came to the Abbey, I was in a place where they were inviting a particular Rinpoche to come and give the poa. And people were so excited about that soft spot in their head. And so, you know, I was so new to the Dharma. I just like, well, clueless. And I got caught up in this and I just felt really like a loser because I didn't get that, you know, he, will, he would go around and check people's heads and Mine didn't have a mark. And <laughs> but I mean, it was so totally inappropriate for me. And I suspect, I don't know, just about everyone else. I mean, you know, these are beginners. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, people, yeah, people need to build a good foundation. But the, the roofs often glitter and they want to build the roof first. <laughs> so he's saying um, if we are limited due to physical condition and we adjust by relying on the state of mind, what happens when our mind is no longer stable? Like, for example, physical pain that causes instability in the mind. How does one continue to practice? Well, you do your best. What more can I say? You know, you've been given the instructions. You do your best to follow them. When you can't follow them exactly, you change this or you change that so that you can do your best to go in that direction. Yeah. I mean, if the mind is uh, over, so they're saying, what happens if your body's not working your, uh, properly and your mind is overcome by physical pain? Is that it? Yeah. Okay. So what are some of the antidotes the Buddha gave for, for meditating when you have pain? What are you going to do? Taking and giving meditation. Hmm? So that one, the taking and giving, you know, if, if you've practiced well, that one will come to your mind immediately because you've been practicing it during all the times when you had the sniffles and all the times when you had tummy aches. And so you know, okay, physical pain, Practice the taking and giving meditation or practice meditating on impermanence. Practice meditating on emptiness. See, this is why it's so important that we, that we not just hear the teachings, but we meditate on them so that they get applied to our mind and we can be a doctor to our own mind. You know, otherwise, if we have notes and we've heard all these teachings, but then when our body's in pain, we go, what do I practice? Then something, we haven't been integrating the Dharma with our mind the whole time we've been practicing. Yeah. So you may not be able to do the taking and giving meditation perfectly if you have really horrible pain, but at least your mind will remember, oh, let's try and think like that. Yeah? Instead of just, what do I do? Yeah? So, so think about it. You know, when you have a stomachache, what do you do? How do you practice the Dharma when you have a stomachache? Do you just say, oh, I have a stomachache, I'm going to bed. And you write a note on the board. Yeah? And then you go to bed. Is that what you do when you have a stomachache? Yeah? Or do maybe you try and do a little bit of practice before you go to bed. Yeah? 
So, yeah, maybe you need, you know, or while you're lying in bed, you do the taking and giving practice, taking and giving practice. Yeah. So, you know, we have to practice with similar situations that we experience now. Yeah, and not just think that we practice when we're healthy and then we're totally befuddled when either the mind or the body don't function properly. What do you do, uh, you know, if your mind is really unhappy? Yeah, because at death time, you know, maybe your mind gets really unhappy about something. Yeah. So what do you do in your life when you're really unhappy? Yeah, do you just go to a friend and complain? Yeah, how how what are you doing with your mind? How are you pr- applying the dharma to your mind when you're unhappy in your daily life? If you don't apply it when you're unhappy in your daily life, then clearly if you're unhappy when you're dying, you're you know, you're going to say, oh, I'm unhappy, give me more morphine. Uh-huh. So, you, you know, people may need more morphine when they're dying. But if we learn to practice, then, you know, we can transform the death experience. Yeah. But to do that at the time of death, we have to do it in the circumstances we face right now in this life. Because it's really like going to get your driver's license. You better practice beforehand. And you better know how to parallel park because we all know they're going to ask you to parallel park. Yeah. So don't think that you can just ignore the driving lessons and as long as you know where the gas and the brake are that you're going to pass the driver's test. Yeah. So. Okay. Good. So we'll start on the... uh, the next few chapters are about karma. You know, I was thinking um, when George Floyd died, we all know that he called out for his mother. Yeah. Um, which is really moving, you know, that he did that. But I remember a story last time when I was in India, just last December, I was talking with Sarkamaramache. And he was telling me a story about one of his teachers. And he said that that teacher was very modest and didn't talk about his meditation or his internal experiences, hardly at all. But one day something happened, I don't know what, and his teacher started talking about things. And his his teacher happened to to say, you know, when you're, when you're suffering, you call out for your mom. But 
when I'm suffering, I think of my Lama. Yeah? So Rinpoche told me, you know, that was like, you know, wake up moment. Yeah. So his teacher clearly is somebody who had practiced a lot. But you only get there by repetition, by practice, by doing it over and over and over again. And there's no shortcut. (laughs) And if you don't like that fact, you can complain. Yeah, I think Donnie uh, may be able to, I'm sure he will side with you. So write to the White House and complain. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs>